All right. I was, uh, Celeste and I were visiting the other day via text about how, you know, a lot of, over the past several months, we've often thought about the situation that we're in with the pandemic as, as a, a diet. If we can just diet, crash diet for 30 days, we'll get through this. But more and more, it's becoming something that we need to get comfortable with for a while. And it's fun watching as we all kind of move into that space. We've kind of gone from like, you know, the, the surgical masks that are disposable to, to ones that we wear more often. And, and we're getting to the point now where more and more of our masks match our clothes. So we're really kind of living into this moment. The chaos is somehow settling down and it's starting to feel a little bit more normal. But with that can become... Uh, entire new levels of anxiety and fear and frustration, um, exhaustion with kind of the situation that we're in, and not just that one, but so many others that are going on in the world today. It's a frustrating year, uh, without any question. But today I want to I want to go to the scene of the cross, and, and Eddie read us a scripture from Luke 23 that we're going to spend a lot of time in this morning. And I, I want to, we're not going to really look at what's happening on the cross of Jesus Christ, what we're going to do is, is kind of look at the scene from the cross to all of the people who are on uh, around the cross, those who are uh, at the foot of the cross and nearby on other crosses, and those who are, are standing there in the crowd, those who are chanting and mocking, those who are weeping, those who are trying to solve this mystery of what's happening. Is this man that they've been traveling with for so many years is all of a sudden being crucified by the Jewish leaders and by the Romans and trying to figure out what does this mean for who this man is and what it means for us as his followers. And all of those questions and all of those reactions are taking place all around the cross of Jesus Christ. So often when we envision this scene, our eyes are fixed on Jesus and it's right that they would be so. But today we're going to zoom kind of out and look around at the others who are are there. They're in the text. They're in the story. Um, You know, leading up to Jesus uh, being arrested and crucified in Jerusalem, you know, there's a number of times that his fame and popularity is shown to really be growing. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Last week, we talked about how Jesus constantly uh, kind of pushed away the celebrity of his miraculous power and ability, that Jesus often pushed away uh, the desire of the crowds to make him more powerful and influential than than he desired to be, because he was focusing on the few, the three, the 12, the 70, the 120, those who were his apostles and his disciples that were really the foundation of his ministry. And yet, even though the few were his focus, Uh, the crowds continued to follow him. They continued to want to see more of him and what he was capable of doing. They loved his teachings, his acts of mercy, mercy and compassion and great power. And so they wanted to be around Jesus more. So we look again at a few texts that we looked at last week where For example, the crowd in Luke chapter 6 and verse 15, this is actually fairly early in Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again by a mountain uh, to a mountain by himself. There's a couple of occasions where the people uh, seek to make Jesus king by force, which is an interesting 
uh, just image in and of itself, the idea that they would take him, uh, and I don't know if you would just put a crown on his head and say, you're the king, you cannot leave, we will not allow you to leave, you, it's like a prisoner king. Uh, whether you want to or not, you are our king. Uh, Jesus would often resist it by simply walking away, and they couldn't find him. On other occasions, in John chapter 3, Again, very early in Jesus' ministry, uh, they, talking about some of John's apostles and others who were around John the Baptist, came and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. There's a real statement about Jesus' growing popularity and influence in the entire region is that John has been the big show at the Jordan River for a long time. And people come to hear him preach and hear him teach and hear him confront uh, the Jewish leaders and their corruption. To, To hear the call to repentance that John has become so well known for. To be baptized by him in the Jordan and all of a sudden the crowds are starting to thin because the crowds are going to Jesus. John has no problem with that, saying, of course, and famously, he must become greater and I must become less, which is really, I think, the great call of all ministers and Christians is to seek to become less so that Jesus becomes greater in every moment in every day of our lives. John chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees who were often uh, Jesus' enemies in debates and arguments, the ones that he would target, they were often trying to target and trap him. And the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We keep trying to knock this guy down and the world just keeps following him wherever he goes, the Pharisees lament. Just in the chapter before that, the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Doesn't that tell you something about these guys' priorities? This guy is doing so many feats of power, so many actions of God, so many signs and wonders. If he's allowed to do it, everyone will believe that he is the Messiah. That, By the way, all evidence points toward him being. But if he's the Messiah, we're going to lose all of our power and influence and wealth that the Romans have given to us and entrusted to us to make sure no one rises up like this guy. It's not a good look. But it's rooted in this fear that because Jesus is who Jesus is, that his power and his fame and his ability and his reputation with the crowds will grow to such an extent that there's nothing that can stop him from ruling over the entire creation and over all people, from becoming the king of the Jews. So in Mark chapter 12, In verse 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And what's clear in all the Gospels is that you can only arrest Jesus at night because his popularity and fame with the crowds is too much. Jesus... Uh, has become a a household name in Israel. And everywhere he would go, people would say, are you the one that they're speaking about? And they would say, I've heard about you and the things that you're doing. And and even later when he's arrested and appears before King Herod, the king himself, the king says, 
Uh, it says that he'd been waiting for some time to have an audience with Jesus, for Jesus to be in his midst, and he hoped that he would see some miraculous signs and wonders. He wanted tickets to the Jesus show. Because rumors about the things Jesus were doing had spread far and wide to the lowest and the poorest of the poor, to the highest of the high. People were saying, have you heard about this man, this Jesus from Nazareth? Have you heard about this man who's doing things that are, that are like a great prophet and are teaching things like a great rabbi? Do you think he could be? Could he be the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Is this the moment we've been praying about? And expectation and rumor and excitement would have been spreading all over Judea and Galilee and all the different places where Jesus went and preached and taught, but none more than Jerusalem on Passover weekend. When everyone remembers God's liberation of Israel from, uh, from Egypt, the deliverer Moses, the celebration of, of how God spared his people and delivered them from the greatest nation in the world. And there were so many messianic hopes tied to that event. And here's where it all starts to come together in Jesus's ministry and the Passover and Jerusalem and his arguments with the Pharisees and the, the Sanhedrin and the chief priest and, and the expectations of the people and the crowd and the popularity and all of this. And Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the middle of the night. So here we have a look at the scene at the cross. All those rumors, all those hopes, all those expectations, and everyone there is saying, wait, how did we get from all of the, the Hosanna, Hosanna, the, the prayed with Jesus coming in. One day, two days, just when was that? It was yesterday? We were marching in to the temple and we thought he was going to be crowned king and now he's here on the cross. What do we do with that? What do we do with that information? Does that change everything we've believed? And, and all of those questions, all of those thoughts, all of the grief and the loss and the fear and the anxiety, the hope that some might still be holding out against all hope is rippling through this crowd, but there's also anger, there's evil, there's so many things that are present there that have led to this moment being what it is. And, and there's so much expectation from everyone in the room, in the room, everyone at the scene, at Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know some about many who were there. We know that Jesus's mother Mary was there. And you have to wonder what it was like not just for a mother to be seeing her oldest and firstborn son hanging on a Roman cross, but to be doing so wondering what does this mean? Because she was there when uh, when the angels came to her and said, you're going to become pregnant even though you've never been with a man. She was there when she became pregnant, not by uh, the way that every other human in all of history has become pregnant, but by the Spirit of God coming on her and making her uh, to conceive and have a child. The Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. But what does this mean for the Son of God to be hanging on a cross? What does it mean about what the angels said? What does it mean about the song where she prophesied about the great ministry that Jesus would bring and the kingdom that he would usher in? What, how could this be happening to the one who was born out of all the expectation that was given to me and all the promises that were given to me? Mary would have to wonder. 
We know that Pilate was there. Pilate, who met with Jesus, who found really no wrong in him, who said, I'll punish him and release him. There's nothing I can do that I can convict him of. Jesus was actually found innocent at the Roman court before the crowds continued to cry out for, for his blood, for his death, for his crucifixion. Pilate, who again tried to release Jesus, wishing that he could wipe his hands of all of this, wanting no part of it, and yet being willing to punish Jesus, to see him beaten, and then eventually giving in to the demands of the crowd so that peace might be restored. Because for a Roman who is over an area like Jerusalem in a time of a great festival with all of the expectations that are there, you just have to make sure that violence and riots don't break out. And if it means sacrificing this one man they want to see dead, then so be it. And so Pilate, with some level of indifference, sends him on. The guards are there. The guards who mocked Jesus, took his clothing as plunder, placed the crown of thorns and the purple robe upon him, the ones who hung a sign over his head that read, the King of the Jews, intended to be an insult unknown to them how accurate it really was. The crowd that spit upon him and made fun of him The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that were there that wanted him killed so that they could keep their status and their power, eliminating the disruption that he was bringing to everything that they had. They were extremely invested in the status quo because in the world of the status quo, they had all the influence, all the power. They were able to just enjoy the seat of honor at the table. It's time to get rid of this guy who kept making them feel foolish and telling them that the greatest was the one who was the least and the one who sat at the end of the table was the one who was the most worthy of honor and that they needed to humble themselves and had no interest in this. It was time to set things back the way they had been before this rebel showed up. We know that Peter was there. Peter was there at the foot of the cross only hours after only hours after denying that he even knew Jesus. Three times, the last of which involved him uh, cursing and telling even a young girl that he appears to be intimidated by, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't been traveling with him. Why do you keep accusing me of such dangerous and slanderous things? And his eyes met with Jesus's. We know that the apostles and the disciples were there, the ones who had sworn, Jesus, we will never abandon you until the guards showed up in the middle of the night and they scattered. And as they scattered from that place to all the different holes that they went to hide in, as they show up and they're watching as this crucifixion takes place, and a day before they start gathering secretly and privately, afraid for their own lives, in an upper room where they're going to ask, what do we do now that the Messiah is dead? And they gathered there with the apostles and the disciples and the women who'd been following Jesus. And they all come into this room and they go, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? For the last couple of years, Jesus would say, who do you think I am? And we would say, you're the Messiah. And he would, he would acknowledge that. And he taught us that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And now he's been crucified by Pilate on a Roman cross. And our own leaders were, were complicit and involved in turning him over to, to How do we make sense of this? Because they'd completely forgotten On at least three occasions, Jesus told them, I'm going to Jerusalem to be arrested by the leaders, turned over to the Romans, and crucified. And on the third day, I will be resurrected. For whatever reason, 
they couldn't hear it. They wouldn't listen. They didn't believe. Peter would say, no, Jesus, you don't understand. You're the Messiah. That cannot happen to you. In the midst of all of this confusion and questioning, we know that a Roman soldier at the foot of the cross watches as Jesus breathes his last breath and he utters his last words. And the soldier, this Roman Gentile soldier, who was part of the group that had put Jesus on the cross and was in charge of watching him and making sure he didn't get off and that he did, in fact, die, says this, Surely this was a righteous man. What do you think he saw during those few hours that Jesus was on the cross as the crowd turned all of the anger and animosity, but as others in the crowd were grieving and weeping at their loss of Jesus, and as so many were confused, and as this sign hangs over his head that says, King of the Jews, and and, and as this Roman soldier tries to make sense of all of this, that when Jesus dies, he says, man, this guy was righteous. What a thing to say. But even that pales in comparison to the faith of one other. There's one that I want to look at today, one who shows unbelievable, wild faith, the day of the crucifixion. And the one that is there is the one that we're going to read about in this short story, the one that was, we read earlier, and I want us to really look at it again today. And, and we miss how significant the faith of this man is because we view it through the lens of 2,000 years later. See, so much of the power of the gospel is lost because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is resurrected. We know what the apostles forgot, that that righteous men with no sin in them don't stay dead, that you can't kill the Son of God and leave him in a tomb. Three days later, he's going to get up, and we know that ending. And so some of what's going to happen here in this story doesn't surprise us as much as it should. So Luke 23, starting at verse 32, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let them save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. I can't help but notice the echo there. If you are the Messiah, then do this thing. Turn this stone to bread. Cast yourself from the temple. Remove yourself from this cross. Jesus never gave in to any of those temptations. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Isn't that an interesting insult? If you are who you say you are, uh, insulting, then why don't you save yourself? And while you're at it, save me too. 
Isn't that a weird add-on? That in the midst of mocking, he, he kind of throws out a challenge. It's like an insulting dare. Hey, while you're saving yourself, just in case I'm wrong about this mockery, why don't you get yourself off the cross? And if you're going to do that, take me with you. I would love to get out of this awful circumstance. I would love to not be here on this cross with you going through this moment. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a request. What a request. Now we know that Jesus is going to be resurrected. We know that Jesus is king of kings. We know that Jesus is going to be sitting on a throne that is not in a palace in Jerusalem like everyone else expected. But how does this guy know that? The word criminal there is often translated thief. It's really stronger than that. He's not a pickpocket. He's more of a robber. There's a level of violence that's attached to what he's doing. At times, some scholars have suggested that it might be even better to be understood as insurrectionist, that he was part of a movement of robbers. He's not a petty thief. This guy is guilty, and by his own testimony, he knows it. He's not saying, man, the Romans are cruel and I'm being crucified and this is unjust. Jesus, can you get us down? Because I know yours shouldn't be, you shouldn't be here either. He says, I'm receiving the punishment I deserve. And to the other criminal, he says, and so are you, by the way. So shut your mouth. We're up here because we earned this spot on these two crosses. But this guy didn't. And there's something that this, this robber, this, this insurrectionist, this criminal has seen over the past couple hours that makes him look at Jesus and acknowledge what the Roman soldier is going to acknowledge. Surely this is a righteous man. But he doesn't stop there. He says so much more. He says to Jesus in this moment, when you come into your kingdom, I want to be there with you. What a thing to say to someone who's dying next to you on a cross as you were dying next to him on a cross. It's incredible because really he's, he recognizes that the sign above Jesus' head, which is intended to mock, is completely true. This man is the Messiah, the king of the Jews. Messiah and king of, uh, of Israel are the same. It's just a Hebrew term for that king uh, role in Israel. This is the king of the Jews. This is the Messiah, and this criminal knows it, which is incredible because the apostles believed that Jesus was the Messiah until he was put on a cross. This criminal seems to not understand that until Jesus gets on a cross. And how did he come to that understanding? And how did he come to that knowledge? Because no one else that's, that's in this scene seems to understand what this criminal does. Because what he says is completely insane. It is wild. This is not a normal and rational response. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What? This man's going to be dead in moments. You're going to be dead in moments. 
And your request is, when you become king over your kingdom, take me with you. That is an incredible amount of understanding and faith. That's an incredible request. Everyone else in this scene is looking at Jesus saying, all hope is lost. There is nothing next. If you're on a Roman cross and you die, it's over. You're dead. How could anything good come out of that? The apostles that have seen everything, Jesus walk on water as if it's ordinary, raising the dead uh, just by his own words. They've seen him feed thousands, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, and yet he gets on a cross and they're not thinking that there's a chance that he's the Messiah anymore. They're in the upper room the next day going, this is, it's all lost. What do we do now? When the women say we've seen Jesus, they respond with disbelief and mockery. Dead people don't get undead. This criminal on the cross is dying, and Jesus is dying, and he gives this unbelievable statement of faith. He understands that Jesus and his kingdom are death-proof and imminent. The kingdom is coming in spite of what looks like the worst possible moment. And then Jesus says, I'll grant that request today. Today. Paradise for you. You'll be with me. Look around. Chaos. Anger evil, grief, lament. The scene is as bad as it gets for this guy. And Jesus says, because of your faith that you want to be part of my kingdom, that you understand that nothing you're watching can threaten me as king or the kingdom that I'm going to produce, since you understand all of that, you'll be with me today in paradise. What's incredible to me is that the thief does not come to him with a request for relief like the other one does. This guy, if we were in his shoes, would have said, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. Now, can you please get us down from here? Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. Can you make this suffering end? Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. It's time to call the 10,000 angels to destroy the world and at least set the two of us free. Because so often we just want Jesus, we've got enough faith for Jesus to change our circumstances. But this guy isn't interested in having his circumstances change. He wants eternity with the, in the kingdom with the king. He's got his focus on the eternal priority. And I think that it speaks to us in this moment and in this year. We want to say, Jesus, because we believe in you, improve our circumstances. We're in a global pandemic, and we would like out of it. We're in the midst of renewed calls to end racism and injustice. We've got protests and rallies in every direction arguing about things that are really important and things that aren't. We've got all kinds of turmoil in the world. We've got political upheaval, and we miss normal. Don't you find yourself saying that every day? I can't wait till things get back to normal. As if normal is good. How short our memory is that we forget that our own country was born out of a desire for religious freedom, but it was captured at the expense of a violent revolution. We forget that in our own history was a civil war where, where in our country 750,000 people lost their lives. 
We forget that we were involved in World War I and II, Vietnam, Korea, that we were involved in, in, in violent war after violent war. And that's not to mention the, the social upheaval that came from uh, the evil of slavery, racism, uh, segregation that's part of our country's history. And, and we get this nostalgia about the past. Like, remember the good old days before we had to wear masks and everything was great? Show me at what generation in our country's history has had a great experience without some kind of upheaval and turmoil and evil coming through and bringing great sadness and loss to their lives. We've been through the Great Depression and the Great Recession. Why do we think that as soon as we can get a vaccine for this, the world will be fixed or healed or cured? It's been broken a long time. Ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden and one of their sons killed the other one, things have been broken and breaking. And they will stay broken until Jesus returns and puts it all back together again. That's just the nature of this world. Even though it's right for us to push against that and to be part of Jesus' desire to start setting the world aright, we're going to have to keep praying that God fix this broken world until he comes back. And if that's true, we need the faith of the criminal on the cross. We need the faith of a guy who hanging on a cross seeing this looks as bad as it can get. And, and in the midst of our history, I'm not sure that this year is the worst year our country survived. In the midst of the history of Christianity that's undergone unbelievable persecution at the hands of all kinds of tyrants, I'm not sure that the church is in its worst moment. But nonetheless, as we go through personal and community and global difficulty, I think it's important that we remember the faith of the criminal on the cross who says without hesitation, Jesus Christ, even as everything is against you in this moment, I believe in you that you are the Messiah, King of Kings. I believe that you are the king and that there's no power over you and that your kingdom is death proof and imminent. In our case, the kingdom has arrived and we are inside it. And that's all that matters and it matters eternally. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is circumstances. And so I think we need to ask, does my life look like I believe in Jesus and his desire for the kingdom? Is my desire for his kingdom? Or does it look like I'm caught up in my own tough times? Jesus, get yourself off the cross and hey, take me with you. Can't we just get to better days again? Either you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and is King of kings and Lord of lords, or you don't. This week in a national news channel, a reporter said, uh, if you're into that Jesus thing and you believe in that kind of a deal, I mean, admittedly, while he was here and he was a person, he wasn't perfect. Are you kidding me? Imperfect people stay dead. Sinless, 
people who have the fullness of God dwelling within them out of God's goodness. Son, the Son of God doesn't stay dead. He cannot stay in the tomb. On the third day, He was resurrected. And the invitation to all of those before and after is this. Will you join Him in His kingdom? Because the King is death-proof and His kingdom is imminent and there is nothing in this world that can shake that. Not even hanging on a cross next to Him, hanging on a cross. That's the kind of faith we need in tough times is a faith that is focused and rooted in the eternal and not the temporary. That is rooted in what is foundational and constant for all of eternity and not what will pass away in a season. The lives of those who are rooted in that are not easily shaken. Not by the world shaking, not by the winds blowing, and boy, they blew last night. But to he who builds his life on the rock, to she who plants her roots by the deep waters of God, there is no storm, no turmoil, no circumstances that can shake you because you're rooted in Jesus Christ, the one who endured everything for our sake, And if you've never responded to that truth, that eternal truth, then why not today as we stand and join our hearts and minds in worship? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What 